We are in the middle of a series here called Doing Emotions Well. And, I, and I, I've got something that I believe is true for every one of us in here. We all have something we regret. I am fairly confident that every one of us in this room has something we regret. Okay? I don't know. Maybe it's that Justin Bieber tattoo you have hidden on your back. Whatever it is, that bad haircut. But we all have something we regret. It's part, I think it's part of the human experience is doing something that the next day, the next week, maybe the next minute, you immediately regret. Okay? And that's why I've included it in this series of doing emotions well. Lessons from the Psalms. Um, because I love the book of Psalms, and it is important that we do emotions well. Because I started this premise, I started this series with one premise. That how we handle our emotions has a direct impact on the quality of our lives, relationships, careers, and faith. Our emotions are no small thing. They have a direct impact on the quality of your life. And if you don't believe me, just Google the phrase emotional intelligence. This is a core premise of emotional intelligence. Fundamentally, it, how we deal with emotions matters. And there's no better book to turn to in the whole Bible than the book of Psalms. And so, so we're, we've been looking the last few weeks. So two weeks ago, we talked about the emotion of sadness. Sadness. And, and, and I, I told you that it's okay to complain. It's okay to complain about your situation in life. But you need to take those complaints and go to God with them. Because that turns into faith. When we start going to everybody else to complain, that turns into resentment. Okay? And it stews. Nothing, that doesn't do any good. Okay? That, that sermon's up online if you want to check it, check it out on our website. And th then last week, last week we talked about happiness. Because we talked sadness first week, happiness the next week. And, and I, warned, I warned you guys that there's a risk. There's a risk in happiness. And the risk is that we start believing that we're the ones kind of in charge. That we're the ones doing, get, doing and getting all the good things for ourselves. And the risk in happiness is that we rely on God less. Okay? I, don't get me wrong. I love happiness. I'm not downplaying happiness, but there is a risk in it. Okay? And now this week, we're talking about regret. We're talking about regret. And now, right now in America, we have this amazing case study in how to do regret really poorly. In fact, how to do regret horribly. His name is Brock Turner. And if you've been following the news, then you probably recognize that name and you probably recognize that mugshot. He's a 21-year-old college student who was arrested and convicted of sexually assaulting another student on, on Stanford campus, an unconscious woman, after a night of partying. He had, and his crime was horrific. His sentence was even more horrific. But what I find most damning and most troubling in this whole thing is the statements that he and his father both submitted to the court on their behalf. And, and if you haven't read these, if you've been following these, it's just, it's just a heart-wrenching and mind-boggling to hear him talk about himself or to hear his father talk about him. 
Um, because what happened is that here's a guy who is doing regret horribly. So, because in these statements, he didn't take responsibility for his own actions. He blamed everything else, from the Stanford culture to drinking. Uh, he, he minimized the seriousness of his crime. It was just terrible. It was a textbook example of how to do regret terribly. Because we know one thing for sure. That is the, that is the person who is probably experiencing the most regret in all of America. Because he is arguably, at this moment in time, one of the most hated people in America. Even Donald Trump is like, takes the heat off me for a little bit. Okay? Like, he's just hated. And it, and it just comes out over and over again. Because I don't think that he knows how to, how to do regret well. And that's what we want to talk about today. So how well do you do regret? How well do you do regret? What do you like the morning after? What do you like the moment after? And whatever it is that you've, you've done or you choose to do that brings up that regret, you're like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. What are you like? I've noticed that there are a few different ways we deal with regret. There are a few different ways that we all deal with regret. So first, first there is the no regrets camp. These are the YOLO. I call this the Miley Cyrus. Okay? It's this idea that like every decision is just part, makes up part of who we are. There's no use in, in, in regretting decisions because every decision, even the bad ones, make up who we are. Okay? By the way, that's hogwash. Okay? If you believe that, please don't take this too offensively, but that's a terrible way to, to view life. And here's why. Okay? Because e yes, it is true that all of our decisions make up who we are, but what that implies is there's no other way to learn the things that our bad decisions have taught us other than making bad decisions. Because if I came up to you, and, and let's say you were, you were in the no regrets YOLO world, okay? And I told you, okay, if you could be the same person, if you could learn the same things you've learned from your mistakes without your wounds, would you still take the wounds? Would you still choose to kind of be beaten up by life and by your own choices? <laughs> no one would want that. So th this idea of no regrets is actually a very flawed perspective. So if you're kind of living in the, the it's, it's not worth regretting stuff, I think there is. In fact, there's a wonderful TED Talk um, out there called, called um, uh, oh, dang, I just, I just lost the name of it. Um, that, oh, it was... Uh, don't Regret Regret by Catherine Turner, I believe it was. Okay, wonderful um, TED Talk on there about regret. And she actually talks about her t a tattoo that she got. And she walked out of the tattoo parlor and she immediately regretted it. And it's a wonderful story about how she dealt with regret. Okay, so that's one way. One way that people deal with regret this is the no regret rule. Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. Um, is are, these are the folks who will deny responsibility. These are the folks, this is the it's not my fault person. This is Brock Turner, okay? It's not my fault. Okay? This, is, this is apparently his dad as well. So, and some, some of you do that. Some of you make a terrible decision 
And I've sat down, I've sat down across with coffee with these people, and, and they start blaming, blame their parents, blame the situation, blame their friends. You want to blame everybody for your bad decision. Okay, so that's one way that we deal with regret. Okay, here's another way. Another way is, is we just move on. Okay, this, I'll confess to you, this is kind of me. Okay, like you sort of know you did something wrong, but you just want to move on with life. What? Oh, there you go. There you go. You just want to move on with life. Just keep going. Ignore. Yeah, I did something wrong, but I don't want to wallow in. I don't want to get too bare. I'm just going to go on with life. Okay, so maybe you're, maybe you're a mover honor. And then there's one last way that I've seen people deal with regret. And these, these are the wallowers, okay? You ever, any wallowers out there? You make a bad decision, and it's just, it haunts you for days and weeks and months. And you can't seem to shake it. And you just can't seem to move on from your bad decision, okay? Those are, your, those are the wallowers. Now, my bet is most of us probably follow into one of those categories of doing emotions or doing regret not too well, okay? So which one are you? How do you handle regret? That's the question of today. Now, I'm thankful that, that God gives us a picture of how to do regret really well. Okay, God gives us a picture of how to do regret really well. And it's in the book of Psalms, Okay? In fact, I believe that it's, that's why I believe that Psalms is hands down the most in, emotionally intelligent book in the whole Bible. We can learn a lot about how to do emotions really well from the book of Psalms. Um, and so, so this week we're going to talk about a certain type of song. Each, each uh, week we've talked about a certain category or what's called genre of psalm. Okay? We, and a couple weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about a lament psalm. These were when you're sad, you want to lament something. Well, there's a subcategory of lament psalms. And this is, I just got a tattoo I deeply regret. <laughs> or I got so drunk last night, I don't even remember what happened. And it's the next morning. So these are called penitent psalms. Okay, penitent psalms. Um, and that, that's kind of an old church word. It's, so here's a definition of what penitent means. It means feeling sorrow or regret for having done wrong. It's the same word we could, that churches and, and the Bible use gets the word repent. Penitent, repent. It's also the same word that was a key figure in Indiana Jones 3 as he was going in to get the, you guys know the movie, Only the Penitent Man Will Pass. If you know that reference, props, you, you got my heart. If you don't, go watch the movie. It's a good one, man. Sean Connery is Indiana Jones' dad. Great one, okay? So a penitent psalm. This, and so that's what we're going to look at today. This is a psalm. This is, this is when you need to express emotions of regret of something that you've done. Penitent Psalms. And we're going to look at a particular psalm. There are about, about six, six or seven of these in Psalms. So it's not a big category, but we're going to look at one of them, and it's the most famous one, okay? It's a really big one. In fact, some of you, who, if you've been around churches, you might have even heard a sermon on this one. It's Psalm 51, okay? And generally in this series, I'd like to pick Psalms you might not have heard or read before, but this one, I had to go with it because it is, it is the defining Psalm on regret, and in Psalm 51, there's something very unique that makes it unique among pretty much all 150 psalms. 
There's something really unique. We actually know, we have a fair level of certainty of the context, the social and historical context of this psalm. That's very unique because most psalms we don't know the context of. They're kind of timeless. They're timeless and placeless, most of the psalms. But this one, we know the context of it. And in fact, it's because it's described right there. If, you, if you've ever read a psalm and you've seen, there's, there's sometimes some little text right below. It's like Psalm 51. And then there's a little blurb. Well, here's the blurb for what it says for Psalm 51. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, a, a couple of people in this series have actually asked me about these little notes in, the, in Psalms. And so, so I, I want to take about two minutes to explain where these notes come from. Okay? These notes were not a part of the original Psalms as they were written. Okay, they were not original, but they were added after the fact. We're not really sure when, but they were added at some point after the fact. So what that means is that, that these little comments at the beginning of a psalm, they aren't part of the original, which means they are not part of God's inspired word to the author. But they are added and they have been kind of supported throughout history. So, so the way to think about them is while they are not inspired directly from God and by God, they are likely to be reliable. So there's a high likelihood of them being reliable. And, so and what's fascinating about this one is this is a story that's actually in the Bible. A lot of the references in Psalms you're like, who? One, uh, th there's some that talk about the sons of Asaph. We have no idea who the sons of Asaph were, okay? But this one we actually know because it's in the Bible, in the, in the book of 1 Samuel 11 and 12. And he, here's the short version of the story. King David, the best king, the best spiritual leader Israel ever had, slept with a woman, got her pregnant, and had her husband killed to cover it up. Okay? Now, I know on Game of Thrones, that's just like a normal Tuesday, okay? but in Israel, as, from the, the top God follower of the king of Israel, that is a horrific sin. That makes Brock Turner look like a Boy Scout. Okay? And, and so what happened here is all of a sudden we have a psalm that is attributed to King David that he wrote sometime after the head priest came up to him and basically called him out on it because God had revealed to Nathan what David did, David's sin. And so Nathan the priest came up to him and called him out on it. And, and David had an amazing response. Instead of defending, minimizing, moving on, shouting out YOLO in Hebrew, okay, that he said, I have sinned. He owned up to it. And sometime after that, he wrote this psalm. Because you might not know this about King David, but not only was he, a, a, for the most part, a great king, but he was also a great musician. That guy could rock a lyre like nobody's business. Okay? Plug that into the amp and just go to town on it. Okay? So he was actually an amazing poet and musician. And so he wrote this, Psalm 51, in response to that sin. And it was pretty much the greatest sin of his life. Okay. 
and he wrote this Psalm 51 as a result of it. And I think God allowed him to do regret really well. And through God's grace, he actually allowed us to see David's model of how should we do regret. Okay? So we're going to look at that. We're only going to look at the first 12 verses. It's about 17 verses, so it's a little long. We're just going to look at the first 12 because it, it kind of gets, gets to the main points that we want to hit here. So, so we're going to talk about this, Psalm 51. Now, one thing to understand about Psalms, Psalms are very structured. Just like Shakespeare's writing was very structured, and, or like haiku poetry, very structured, syllable, syllable, blah, blah, you know the thing, okay? That psalms were very structured. So penitent psalms almost always had at least four components. <laughs> four components. I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> so four components. Here we go. Four components. And, and th they included this. A plea for forgiveness a confession of sin, a plea for cleansing, and then a plea for restoration. And what, what's cool about Psalms is if you begin to understand what these sections are, Psalms actually become pretty easy to understand. If you've ever been confused by a Psalm, it helps to know what the sections are. So penitent Psalms almost always have at least these four sections. They might not always be in that order, but I think this is a pretty good order to follow here. So let's actually talk about it. Let, let's start in with the first section, starting with verse 1. Okay, this is the plea for forgiveness. It starts with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. So this first section here actually covers a couple things. One, it's kind of like an intro paragraph because he, he sort of summarizes the whole psalm in just one paragraph. Okay? Um, but it also introduces his plea. God, forgive me. Okay? And he starts out with an amazing line. Have mercy on me, O God. Now, that's, that's pretty common church language. And if you've been around church, you'd be like, okay, yeah, that's what, you, that's what the Bible says. Mercy, 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 okay? But let me define, let me define a couple words for you here to help the, help the impact of that statement. So I'm going to define two words, grace and mercy. Two very churchy words, but if you understand the distinction, it completely changes the way you look at it. Okay, so first, grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Okay? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's love for us is an act of grace. We don't deserve his love. He gives it to us freely. Now, mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Right? Now, this tells you that David's heart was rock solid. His heart was in the right place. Because he started out by saying, not give me grace, which means give me something I don't deserve. He says, have mercy on me. What he's saying here, God, is God, I understand I deserve punishment. I deserve condemnation. I deserve death. 
please don't give it to me. And he starts off with a great heart. Have mercy on me, Lord. And then he continues. Then he, then he has these statements of asking for forgiveness. Let's go to section two. So the next set here. And this, this section is the confession of sin. The confession of sin. For I know my transgressions, which is another word for I've transgressed the law. You've crossed a line. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the beginning, then there's another verse that we'll hit in just a sec. But there's this amazing focus on his own sin. And that is a very admirable thing for a person to own their sin, to own their failures, to own their transgressing of God's law. And he even says, okay, you're, you're, you're right when you judge me. You're right. You ever heard, you ever had someone say like, who are you to judge? David doesn't say that. God, he says, God, you are the one to judge. But look at the focus on his sin. Look at this. Transgressions, sin, I have sinned, evil, repetition over and over again. He is fully aware of his own sin. And I think it's probably one of the best things Brock Turner ever could have done was that. But he didn't. He made excuses he blamed, he talked around, he used general language, he used euphemisms, which are like flowery words. Instead of crime, it was situation. No euphemisms around here. David is not messing with his words here. He's going straight to the point. I have sinned. I have done what's evil in God's sight. Okay, let's, let's hit the next paragraph. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here, actually go back a slide. I want, I want to hit one thing because I, I want to make one comment before, before we hit some of that, okay? There's a line up here, against you, you only I have sinned. Okay? And I want to make a comment about that, particularly because you might be thinking, um, I think you kind of sinned against the girl you got pregnant or the guy you had executed in war, okay? And, and, that's, and David is not saying that he has not sinned against people because he did. And he acknowledged that very clearly to Nathan in the story in 1 Samuel. But what he is saying is he is focusing all of his energy to saying, I have sinned against God. And often I think when we, do, when we wrong someone else, it's, we, we either end up in one of two extremes. Sometimes we will minimize the sin we do against someone else, like we won't say sorry, <laughs> and we'll just apologize and confess to God. Okay? The, other t- the other extreme is maybe you'll apologize to someone, but you won't talk to God about it. And so he is simply focused. He is not at all diminishing his crime against a married woman or 
her husband. But what he is doing is he is focusing all of his energy and all of his thought in this psalm toward God. So this is not about minimizing the victim. This is about emphasizing his sin against God. Okay, let's go to the next one. So, so now here's all this talk, sinful at birth, from my mother's womb. Okay, now this, this, this is kind of an amazing statement because first of all, it sounds pretty weird. Okay, let's, can we all just be honest about this? Like, I'm sinful in the womb. I'm just like a little embryo at that point. Okay, so this is a couple things. One, this is an example of a literary example of what's called hyperbole. Hyperbole is intentional over-exaggeration to make a point. So this is, this is a literary example of hyperbole. He's, he's kind of over-exaggerating here. Because remember, these are poems. These aren't confession. These, these aren't like legal documents. These aren't biographical documents. No, these are poems. And we all know poets use some kind of grand language. The other thing that this does, and this is the point that I believe that, that David is making here, is that he's emphasizing this isn't a one-time slip-up. I'm not a good person who just did one bad thing. Or I guess in David's case, it would be two bad things. Okay? He is saying, I have been evil since the day I was conceived. Incidentally enough, this, I believe, is actually the fundamental flaw of Brock Turner's father's court statement. Because he basically argued, and Brock did the same, in their statements, I am a good person, and I made one bad mistake. And one bad mistake shouldn't harm all the good personness I've had in my 20 years of life. Okay? And, and that's part of what, if you've read any of the, the online reactions, just exploded over this. Okay? And that's not what David is saying. David is not saying, I'm a good person, and I just happen to make two little tiny mistakes. Okay? He's saying, no, I am rotten to the core. The ver my very embryo was evil. That's how bad it is. And I think, that, that, I think there's a lesson we all can learn from that. How often we dismiss an, uh, something we have done, a sin we have committed against God, against someone else, as just a one-time thing. Okay? It was just one night. Where, and, we say, and the implication is, otherwise, I'm a good person. That's not what David is saying. He's like, I'm not a good person, and I never have been. Okay? Let's move on to section three. Section three. This is a plea for cleansing. A plea for cleansing. So, so here's something. David understood something that we often forget. Sin breaks us. Sin damages us. Sin makes us corrupted. It makes us dirty. That's what sin does. It damages us. It damages our relationship with God. It damages our relationship with people. And he knew because he was corrupted. He needed cleansing. So let's hear how he says. Cleanse me with hyssop. Now, okay, that, I don't know if, I don't, do you have any hyssop in your pantry? Maybe, maybe in your herb drawer? No? Okay, me neither. Okay, it's basically, hyssop is an herb that was used for ritual purification in the, in the Jewish temple. Okay, so this is an herb that was specifically used for purification. I don't know if nowadays it'd be like, 
cleanse me with Clorox or something, okay? <laughs> uh, whatever you use to clean, that's what this is. Cleanse me with scrubbing bubbles, okay? Whatever it is, okay? Um, so think of that's what he's saying. And so cleanse me with hyssop and I will be cl clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What an amazing statement that David understood he, he messed himself up. And that's more than just kind of the, 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 the original sin. We are, all part, we are all kind of twisted in our nature. No, this is this act of mine, these two acts of mine and all the lying that went along with it has made me dirty. I need to be cleaned. So cleanse me, Lord. And there's that amazing picture, make me white as snow. Okay? And now, being in Minnesota, we know snow. Okay? And so I would probably classify, I, I would add a little bit more to that. Make me as white as snow that just fell, not that nasty snow two months later in the gutter and it's all brown and icky. Okay? <laughs> no. This is freshly fallen snow. And I think every one of us in here wants that. We want that in our life. Because we all have something we regret. And we, we wish that we could be white as snow. But sometimes we don't believe we can. Or we don't believe we deserve it. But David cried out to be made white as snow. Right. He continues in this, in this section three about cleansing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. I mean, come on, isn't this what you want? Isn't this what er every one of us wants? To be cleansed, to have joy and gladness replace our sorrow. To have our iniquity, which is a, another word, another synonym for sin, to have the wrongs we've done blotted out. Um, that word blotted out, that's actually a writing reference. We would call it erased. Imagine writing stuff out in pencil and having it erased. That's what that word blot out means. Don't you want the wrongs you've done erased from your ledger to be made clean again? That's what God offers, and that's what David is praying for. And now, lastly is the fourth section. The fourth section on a plea for restoration. See, our sin kind of, it makes us dirty. It makes us kind of um, uh, damaged. So the cleansing deals with the dirt. The restoring deals with the damage. Because our sin damages us. It damages us psychologically. It damages us emotionally. It damages us spiritually. And it damages us relationally. So he understands that he needs, he needs a little rebuilding. He needs to put up the orange cones and let God do some construction on him. Okay. So let's listen to this. Created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
Now, what's amazing about this section is over and over again, he talks about things he knows he doesn't deserve. Look at every single line here. Do not cast me from your presence. What does he know he deserves? To be cast from God's presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Imagine if as punishment for our sin, God removed the Holy Spirit from his followers. And David's saying, please don't do that. Please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I've lost that joy. Sin damages us. I've lost that joy. And granted me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's fundamentally saying, I don't want to do this. I don't have a willing spirit. I have an evil spirit. So God, I need you to grant me, give me a willing spirit. This is an amazing psalm of how to do regret well. Okay? So remember the four sections? Remember the four sections we talked about? Confession, forgiveness, confession, cleansing, restoration. The four basic structures of a, a penitent psalm. These are also the four essentials for doing regret well. These same four things that David did well, we can do well. But the problem is, <laughs> we usually don't. Okay? Out of these four sections, I'm almost positive that every one of us does one of these poorly. At least one of them. <laughs> Some of us would be like, I'm lucky if I get one of those right, okay? But that's how we mess up regret, is we mess up one or more of these sections. So, so I, what I want to hit is I want to hit each one of these sections and tell you how we mess it up. So I want, you, I want you to think right now of these four sections and take a guess which one of these you think you mess up the most, Okay? Which one of these do you think you mess up the most? Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how we mess these up. First one, forgiveness. This is, this is David's line, have mercy on me, O God. How we mess it up is we think we deserve forgiveness. We think we deserve forgiveness. Okay. Just because God gives forgiveness doesn't mean we deserve it. Just because God gives love doesn't mean that we are worth his love. We are worth his love because he loves us, not the other way around. And I think one of the problems that we face is that when we do something, when we sin, when we wrong someone else, we kind of go to God saying, okay, forgive me, God. You have to. It's your responsibility. You can't back out on this. I deserve it. Whereas what was amazing about David was the only thing he was convinced of, he deserved condemnation. And he pleaded to God for forgiveness. What if, and this is not true, but what if you weren't sure God was going to forgive you? How would you approach him? He might, you just weren't sure. How would you approach him? Even more so is if you believe you didn't deserve his forgiveness, how would you approach him? I think it changes the way we talk to God. 
It changes how we ask for forgiveness, not that we ask for forgiveness. Because that's the mistake I don't want any person in here to make, is to feel that God does not want to give forgiveness for our sins. That's different than us deserving it. Let's go to the next one. Confession. This is his statement, I know my transgressions. Again, kind of saying, I know my sins. I'm owning up to my sins. I'm not trying to whitewash it. I'm not trying to euphemize it. I'm not trying to talk around it. I'm owning up to my sins. Now, how do we mess this one up? Is we minimize our sin. We minimize our sin. We, we kind of tell ourselves it's not as serious as it really is. Or it's not really a sin. It's not really that bad. We minimize our sin. And so I don't know what sins are a part of your life. Whether whether you're looking at porn on a daily, weekly, hourly basis. You're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're enraged with jealousy over whoever works at your husband's office. You're constantly angry at your wife. And you're shouting. I don't know what your sin is, but I think one of the things we need to do is we need to take our sin seriously. We need to call sin, sin. And I think when we don't, we minimize our sin and we don't turn to God for forgiveness. But we need to start calling our sin, our sin. Um, Give me permission to rant for just like a couple minutes, okay? A little, little bit of a rant. Here we go, okay? I am so sick and tired of all the outrage on the internet. Okay, can I just say that? I'm sick and tired of everybody being outraged at everyone else. And I, I firmly believe if we were as outraged at our own sin as we are on everything we read on the internet, this would be a better world. There we go, Okay. Enough of my rant. <laughs> there we go. So I think it's time for us to start getting outraged by our own sin. By our own sin. And I think when we read this psalm, David was outraged by his own sin. And he was heartbroken by his own sin. And he was devastated by his own sin. We need some of that. Okay? To do regret well, we need some of that. Okay, let's talk about number three. Cleansing. And that's, this is David's statement. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Cleanse me with Clorox and scrubbing bubbles, okay? Cleanse me and I will be clean. How we mess up on this one? We hold on to our sin. We hold on to our sin. Because maybe you believe if God really knew what I did, he wouldn't forgive me. Well, he does know what you did. And he does want to forgive you. But we hold on to our sin. Some, some of us, sometimes, you ever met someone who holds on to their sin kind of like a, a punishment? Where they, 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 you kind of imagine them like that crazy monk um, in, uh, oh, now I'm, um, now I'm blanking out. But, but it, what, what, one of those crazy guys who are like whipping themselves because of their sin, okay? You, you know that? Okay? Where they, they're hurting themselves because of how, how bad they feel. Some people hold on to their sin because they feel they need the punishment. They deserve the punishment. Sometimes we hold on to our sin because we feel that bad about ourselves. 
God doesn't want you to hold on to your sin. That's why Jesus Christ came and died. So that he could take your sin so that you don't have to bear it. That's why Jesus died for you. So God doesn't want you to hold on to your sin. He doesn't want you to punish yourself. Jesus was punished enough. He doesn't need more punishment. He wants to cleanse you from your sin and let you let go of your sin. Lastly, restoration. Now, this is David's statement of creating me a pure heart. Creating me a pure heart or a clean heart, another translation. Okay? How we mess this up is we move on without being restored. We move on without being restored. And I think this is, this is probably the reason why we go back to some of the sin over and over and over again. Because we're never allowing God to restore our heart. He, we're never really allowing God to repair whatever it is that's broken in us that is driving us to this sin. Um, so so before, my, my wife Pofo challenged me recently. Um, if, you, if you've been around River Life, and especially if you've known me for a while, you know I've struggled with my weight, and I've been up and I've been down, and I'm kind of on an up, I guess that'd be a, I'm gaining weight, okay? I've kind of topped off now. Is that up? Is that a good or a bad thing, okay? But, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm dealing with some health issues now that I wasn't before, and, and, and basically I've kind of screwed this up, okay? Uh, as I have in years and decades past. Um, and she said something interesting to me, and I, and I actually got kind of defensive about it. Um, but she said, you know, Craig, I think part of the problem is that you've never really allowed God to deal with the really deep thing in you that keeps driving you to eating. I got a little defensive, and, but then I kind of backed down a little bit. Okay, deep breaths, and we were able to talk a little bit about it. But, but there, I think there is some truth to that, that we have stuff that is broken deep inside us. And whatever sin you keep going to, whether it's porn, whether it's a bottle, whether it's a pill, whether it's a puff, whether it's shopping, whether it's anger, whether it's jealousy, whatever sin you keep going back to, there is something in you that God wants to restore. There is something in me that God wants to restore so that we aren't driven back to that over and over and over again. If I ever f figure this out with my food, I'll share it with you because <laughs> um, I don't quite have that figured out yet. But I think we all have that. And there's some habitual sin that you keep going back to that God wants to free you from. God wants to restore you. You confess, he forgives, he cleanses, and he restores. And all of those need to be in place to do regret really well. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess our sin.
God, we don't minimize it. We don't dismiss it. God, we admit. We, we admit we have sinned against you. We have fallen short of your call for us. So we plead for your presence. We plead that you not condemn us. I plead that you not condemn me. And in that, Lord, cleanse us and restore us. And I especially pray for that spot deep down inside each one of us. God, that we open our hearts enough that we can let you in to those deep, dark, broken places. So even over the course of this next song, Lord, open our hearts. Let you cleanse and restore what is broken inside us. So thank you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died so that we can be forgiven. And in his name I pray. Amen.